Let me start. Thank you, Nathan. Um, and so it's, it's good to be back. And I thought, you know, I'm back from a vacation, so what is a great, easy, light topic to bring to the floor? So why not do something simple like Roe versus Wade and abortion? So, um, but to be honest, this was put on my heart, and I just couldn't shake it. And it was, let me start with a disclaimer for three things as we go into it. First, I am no way claiming to be an expert in this issue either side. Uh, I did not study in a seminary. I did not spend 40 hours in a special particular training for this. Um, I'm just presenting it as a pastor of a congregation as I discern the Holy Spirit and God's word. Second, I am not preaching if you're on a particular side, to try to sway you to the other. Uh, I don't think that even happens as much as we think it happens. Like, for example, saying, you are the devil, doesn't really make people want to change their decisions. Uh, So the point of this is not to help you switch sides, but to see, what does God see? How does God see this particular situation? Third, you know me enough that I almost never talk about politics explicitly from the pulpit. I preach God's word. I preach the good news of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that he will be able to speak to us, to our hearts. So that is what I'm going to cling to. So those are the disclaimers as we go into this topic of hard conversations of Roe versus Wade. So let me start with this simple, easy way. And this is a common uh, illustration that I've seen people use. Okay, so what do you see? What Specifically, can of Coke, what what are some things that you see? Letters, okay. Red, right? Okay, I, I see a flag. I see a, I see a QR code. Do you see that? Oh, there is a QR code here. <laughs> I see a UPC code. And so, you know, a lot of times in issues, there are, there are sides that we can't see completely. But there is a God who sees the full side. So we are not God, thank God. <laughs> There is one God who does see the whole side. And so while we're in this messy lower world, things can get really choppy and messy. And one of those choppiness is this hot topic of abortion and pro-life and pro-reproductive choice. And so recently in the Roe versus Wade, just a summary, the clarification, just so everyone's kind of on the same page, the decision to overturn Roe versus Wade recently in the Dobbs and the Jackson case was not to criminalize abortion. It was not to say abortion is forbidden. What it says was it sends the question of abortion and pro-choice um, uh, reproductive back to the state so people can choose within the state. So California is going to, no surprise, uh, will become a refuge. A place like Texas will become a place that will probably start pushing for forbidding it. So overturning it doesn't mean the abortion has become criminalized. It's a decision that says, hey, the Supreme Court does not see it in the Constitution as a Constitution matter. So in the final writing, the majority uh, by Justice Alito, he wrote that the Roe versus Wade decision in 1973 was based on erroneous view that a woman's constitutional right to privacy entitled her to terminate a fetal life she was carrying. What that's saying is they saw that case and saw that the Constitution doesn't really support that. 
And so the Constitution makes, quote-unquote, he writes, the Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision. So the Supreme Court was just trying to say, hey, we're doing our job interpreting the law and this issue, and we're seeing that the Constitution doesn't have really an explicit clause. Alito wrote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. So the dissenting side, the side, the minority, they also wrote in dissent, Justices Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, and Sonia Sotomayor said, the ruling means that in the majority's view, now listen to this, from the very moment of fertilization, a woman has no rights to speak of. So the court is erasing women's status as free and independent citizens, they said, and the ruling threatens other rights, including contraception and same-sex marriage. Whew. So you can see how this is such a furious, uh, passionate topic. Because based on the Supreme Court justices, the majority and the dissenting, it boils down to this. One, the majority is saying the woman has constitutional rights but does not have the entitlement to terminate a fetus she carries. And the dissenting side says, you have just declared that a woman has no right to her own body. And so this is why there's this fervor and fury of, of, of anger from the left and the right. And the right sometimes celebrating and saying, yeah, we finally won, but did, did we really win? And then left side, like, oh, we lost, but do we really lose? So rephrasing a question format, the two sides come down to this. Does not the life inside the womb carry worth? Does not the life inside the womb carry worth? And the other question is this. Does not the woman have worth and voice to her own body? Now, in abortion debates, um, maybe you have different experience, but I'm reading, watching news, and seeing, and something, a pattern comes out to me, and I always look for the pattern. And the pattern is that we keep hearing these two positions, and maybe it's due to the nature of abortion, but they seem to be mutually exclusive when it comes in the public realm. You know what mutually exclusive means, right? Like, we can't have darkness and light. When you turn the light on, darkness doesn't, like, hang out with the light. <laughs> it just, it's just one or the other. Mutually exclusive. Like, if I have $10 and I want to buy Matthew lunch, I can't buy him lunch with the $10 and keep the $10 at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. And so the question becomes, is the worth of a woman... And the worth of a baby, are they mutually exclusive? Forget abortion, but just look at the face question. Is a woman's life, dignity, worth, and her right to her own body, is that mutually exclusive from a baby? If you look at just those two separately, they're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they both are valid and real at the same time. But in media, it's funny. You never hear that from pro-choice and pro-life. So, for example, pro-life people say the baby's wor life is worthy. There's a baby in there. God brought that baby together. But you never hear the following part. And the woman who's made in the image of God is worthy of compassion, care, and love. And on the other side, you hear a woman's life. She's entitled to her own body. But you very rarely hear, and 
there is this tension here that this baby is made in the image of God. God's knitting together. And because of that, we have perceived it as, oh, they're mutually exclusive, and they're not. So even the Bible will say, God says, I support both of these values. So for example, does a woman have worth and equality to other people? The Bible has loads of support for that from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis 1.27, if you have your Bible, you can follow along, underline if you want to, but listen. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So in Genesis 1, right off the bat, man and woman, equal in God's eyes. Galatians 3.28, we just did a study on this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Explicitly, in Christ, there is no hierarchy. Men are superior than women, or women are superior. There is no, and that's fascinating. We didn't talk about this often, but in Jesus' times, women were considered property. In the Jewish culture, Greek culture, Roman culture, wives were property. And then you see Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, saying, there is neither male nor female. We are one in Christ. That's radical in 2,000 2000 years ago. And so Jesus elevates women. He elevates women to a higher higher worth and dignity. Authors Scanzoni and Hardesty, in their book, they, they write, Jesus came to earth not primarily as a male, but as a person. He treated women not primarily as females, but as human beings. Like, Jesus never said, hey, well, you're a woman, let me treat you this way. Well, you're a man, I'll treat you this way. What they're saying is, if you observe Jesus, he treats them as human beings. In John 4, Jesus speaks with the Samaritan woman, whose reputation was pretty terrible, that the town didn't hang out with her. And she, he says to her, can I have a drink of water? And she sees it. She's like, wait, you're talking to a woman? You're a Jew? You're talking to a, a Samaritan? And you're a teacher, you're talking to a person like me. And we see it in Old Testament. Ruth, Naomi, Esther, Deborah. And so author James Borland, he writes, Jesus demonstrated only the highest regard for women in both his life and teaching. He recognized the intrinsic equality of men and women and continually showed the worth and dignity of women as persons. So does the Bible support that women have rights and equality in God's eyes? And the answer is... 100%. That's not even like a question. That's not even, so we're kind of cautious because we're wired to say, uh, what if I say that, would it mutually exclude that I may be pro-life? But then we see the other side, don't we? At the same time, does a child growing in a mother, in a woman's womb, does that life have validity according to scripture? Psalm 119.73a your hands made me and formed me. Psalm 139, 13, for you formed my inward part. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That word knitting uh, comes again in Job 10, 11 through 12. You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. Like, you know, making a baby is amazing. It's a miracle. It, it's, it's a phenomenal thing. Um, and when I see a child, all three of my, I saw only, actually, I only saw Michelle being born. I wasn't there for Jamie and Ethan because they decided to come early in the morning when I was watching the other siblings. 
And so, but when, you, when you're there for Michelle, I was just, it's, it's, it's awesome. And you're like, how did that child come together, a human being? And so this was interesting. Luke chapter 1, do you remember when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and they're both pregnant, and then what happens? Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and she exclaimed, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. It responded in worship. The baby had life. And so I was researching, how many months was uh, Elizabeth pregnant? And they said she was about six months pregnant, and Mary was three months pregnant. And they have this interaction. By the way, so John the Baptist is a little older cousin than Jesus. So the Bible has zero doubt that both the woman has equal worth and dignity, while the baby also has worth and dignity. They are both made in the image of God. Again, why have we made this mutually exclusive? Because in this issue of abortion, they both collide into this collision course. Pro-reproductive rights, pro-choice people seem to avoid mentioning anything to do with this womb and having a life. And a lot of pro-life in our conversations, we forget the woman that is struggling or wrestling. Or even if they just flippantly are doing it, that at the end of the day, Jesus came and died for her as well. So in extreme views, um, the pro-choice side would say, a woman has rights so much that she could even kill the baby because it's her life is more important. And then in the extreme view of pro-life, they say, since the baby matters, I don't care what you think, woman, you're carrying that baby to pregnancy. And so you could see why the world is so in conflict with this thing. So there's this tension, and it's seemingly mutually exclusive. And why can't we hold these two truths and values in harmony theologically? Why, can't, why does this not come together? How do we get here? And so I'm going to give you the answer to solve all of this. Just kidding. Nathan, Nathan figured it out. There, there, I hope you, you guys should be like yeah, laughing too. Can we laugh? So how do we get to this point where two good values, are we in agreement? There are two good values? Yes? Right? Does anyone want women to have no rights? Wives are looking at their husbands right now. You better shut up. Like, right? They're both good values. They're both worthy. How do we get here? And that frustration we see when we watch the news and when we, when we had a little glee, how do we get here? And at the risk of sounding simplistic, let me give a theological answer. Isn't this the very direct impact of what sin has done in ravaging this world? This is the direct result of sin entering and devastating the beauty that God created for the women to have dignity and worth and for children to be born with dignity and worth. There was a time when that was fine and this was never an issue. How do we get here? Friends, this is the devastation of sin that is in us, around us, and has corrupted the world. Romans 8.22, listen carefully. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together as it suffers together the pains of labor. It's interesting they use the childbirth analogy, metaphor. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who had the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Why do we groan? Why is the creation groaning and suffering? Can we all say it together? Don't be shy. Sin. The issue of this abortion for theological perspective is not to demonize people, but to recognize the devastation of sin. And you guys are all smart and wiser. I'm definitely not the smartest person in this room. Can you legislate away sin? No. Can you legislate holiness? No. Who is the only remedy and source for sin? Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. So we're in this mess, not because of the people on both sides. We're in this mess, living the fruit of the devastation, the groaning of creation that was not the way it was meant to be. And that frustration we feel is our soul saying, God, we need a redeemer. God, we need this world to have salvation. And the debate reveals that creation is groaning, and it's not my neighbor who is my enemy. It is sin for what you, Jesus, died on the cross for. So we get to Ephesians 4, and I'm not going to spend too much time. And Paul writes this. Since we have Christ and we realize the wretchedness of our sin. That's, by the way, that's the only way we become Christian. Uh, you only become Christian when you see the wretchedness of your own sin and you realize the beauty and the gift that Jesus Christ wants to forgive all of my sins. He died for me and rose again. He came for this world. I don't deserve this. And Paul says, bingo, that's the mercy. That's the gift of grace by faith. It's a gift. It's free. And so Paul writes in first chapter, three chapters of Ephesians, you remember, all that Christ has done to unify the world, to bring us harmony. And in chapter 4, he begins, so this is how we will live. And he writes this, Ephesians 4 starts with, Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Today's text, verse 17, he writes, now this I say and testify to the Lord. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Do not walk as the world walks. You are different set apart. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They become callous. Verse 20, but not so with you. That's not how you learn Jesus. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught the truth. And so we stand different. The church is not here to judge and condemn the world. We walk in a different way. What does that walk look like? He goes on. He tells us, verse 25, Therefore, we put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now listen to this. This is the part where it gets a little bit more rubbing. Verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. See, this is what I see in me and what I see in our debate. And I'll, let me talk about me. Have you ever been right, but the way you express that you're right has been wrong? Can you raise your hand if you understand what I'm saying? Have you ever been right, but the way you express that you're right has been wrong? And, and so this is what we do. 
I know that that life in the womb is worthy, and God wants that life to be precious. Therefore, mother, you're a murderer. You're evil. You're terrible. And we base our attacks on a truth that we feel we're valid in to demonize and destroy another person. And irony is this. Who is made in the image of God? The baby or the mother? And the answer is both. In your anger, do not what? Do not add fuel to the fire, church. Do not add wood to the flames. You have been called and set apart by Jesus Christ. Of course the life of the child is worthy. Of course the mother's life has validity, worth, and rights. Either way, out of that position, you could be right, but we could respond so wrong. I make this problem all the time. Ask my family. And I'm like, I'm right. And my wife is like, yeah, but you're presenting it wrong. And so we have this sin to repent of. That we don't have a moral high ground. Because were any of you saved by your moral high ground? No. We were saved while still sinners. And so Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. He goes on, and he, he ends with this. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of revenge. That means do not relish and continue on in sin. That's how we grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, listen to this words in the frame of this Roe versus Wade debate. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And he ends with this, verse 32. Can we put verse 32 up, Ethan? Verse 32, scripture. Let's read it together. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Imagine what this debate would look like. We can't solve it on this side of heaven with legislature. But imagine on either side what it would look like to look at the other party with kindness, tenderheartedness, with forgiveness. Knowing we're not, our job is not to change minds. Our job, I mean, you know that. Some of you have family and kids and spouses whose minds will never be changed. So you love them and live with them. God will change the hearts. God will intervene. So what is our job? Even to those who have done egregiously the opposite of what we think is right, as Christ forgave us, we forgive them. And that ironically, that hard path is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ invading our society. Henry Nouwen wrote this, and I thought it was fitting to end this message this morning. Can we put it up? And I'm like, man, I need to print this and put it in my car, on my church office, and in my home. <laughs> because we could be right wherever side you're on and live so wrong. And the gospel calls us to repent. The gospel calls us to love and pray and act out that love to the other sides. And what does it look like to show this? So did I offer peace today? Did I bring a smile to someone's face today? 
Did I say words of healing? Did I let go of my anger and resentment? Did I forgive? Did I love? Doesn't that sound like Ephesians 4.32? These are the real questions. How do we look at Roe versus Wade? Maybe we look at Jesus and we look at people as people. And we sit in this tension that this frustratingly will never be solved because we're in a world corrupted by sin. But hallelujah, God has given a redeemer to start undoing the works of sin and brokenness. Starting, can you say, with me. Starting with us that he may penetrate this world with his good news. And so I want to keep that slide up, Ethan, because as we take the Lord's Supper, we, we really want to take this with weight and gratitude. Th this doesn't give us um, more righteousness. We have that enough. Everything we need is in Jesus Christ. But when we come to the bread and dip the cup, we're reminded, Christ Jesus, what you have done for me, for a sinner, wretch like me, and the blood you spilled, the body you broke, that I can be renewed. Thank you. Give me faith. May my eyes look to you and you only. And so as we take this, we need to introspect, and these are great questions to introspect, that we would ask for forgiveness, that we would turn to God with our sins, that we would renew our minds, and as Romans 12, 2 says, therefore, change your minds, be transformed the renewing of your minds, to think as Christ thinks. So on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples, and after giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat, and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup, saying, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. For as you take this bread and drink this cup, be reminded that I will return and that your grace, my grace for you is more than enough. Would you take a moment to join me in just prayer of silence as we just pray? And as all, we have, all of us have experienced and tasted what a groaning world looks like because of sin. And we all recognize, if we're honest with ourselves, that the groaning of sin that is in us and that we commit to another, we return again to the grace that never ends from Jesus Christ. That he who gave his life for you when you were still a sinner, would he not give you all things as his child? Let's humbly, thankfully, graciously receive and just fix our hearts on Jesus Christ. So God, in this morning, we empty ourselves 
at the feet of the cross. All bitterness, resentment, pride, anger, wrath, and just self-righteousness. All of us who have maybe too often demonized in our hearts or in our words and our actions another, forgive us. Forgive us again that we would turn back to you and look to the cross as the hope and the antidote. Not just for our own souls, but for the world. That you will one day bring a new kingdom and a new heaven where all of this we rebuild will be returned to the way you have always intended. So that all life will be dignified, saved, protected, and loved. While we're on this side of heaven, God, as we take this communion this morning. Give us the grace and the wisdom and the clarity of Jesus. Help our steps, help our words, help our minds to be like your son. This we pray in his holy name. Amen.